There's a lot of abundance in this room today. We're excited because today we're finishing a sermon series that we've been calling Abundant Love. And uh, as we do that, what we're going to do is kind of finish this walk we've had for the last few weeks through Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5 is uh, kind of an interesting chapter as Jesus starts his ministry. What we've been seeing is that this Jesus is not afraid of just about anything. As, as we just saw five people go ahead and get in the water, go under the water, and for the little eyeballs, they're like, first, they say, this is cold, and that's a little bit of fear. And then second, they say, what, you're going to push me? When we were doing the rehearsal kind of run through, someone said, so they're going to push me all the way under. Let me get this straight. And then what? And you're like, yo, then we'll bring you back out. It almost always works, we promise. Okay, and, and there's a fearlessness with that because uh, little Aubrey said, you know what? She goes, Pastor Kyle, I'm a, I'm a little bit afraid of this. And I said, well, what, what are you afraid of? She goes, that's a lot of people. <laughs> and so every single person who walks up here, every single baptized person has their own fears they deal with. Every single one of us in these seats have our own fears that we deal with as we walk through life. And what we see in Luke 5 is a fearless Savior, Jesus. And so that's what we're going to do today is look into that and see what that looks like as we apply it back to our own lives. And so we're going to start in Luke chapter 5, verse 27. I'll put it on the screen here and you can read along as we go. The scripture says this. It says, after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi, also uh, known as Matthew, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And he left everything and rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. There was a large company of tax collectors and others sitting at the table with them. And the Pharisees describes the religious people of the day. They murmured against his disciples. And they said, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick. Yeah, that's what I'm here for. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so what we need to know and understand as we start to get into this passage is, is this Levi, is, is Matthew from the house of Levi. Was sort of, Levi was sort of his family name. And he's a tax collector, which if we don't know, is a despised social position. So he's somebody who society will look at with scorn. Tax collectors were known not only for enforcing the oppressive Roman tax law, but also for taking off the top for a little bit of graft. And so not only were they taking for the oppressor, but they take a little extra for themselves. And so tax collectors were not popular people. They were probably on the bottom of the uh, most popular people list in the day. But he's also a Levite. Being Matthew the Levite, Levites actually had a really privileged position in Jewish culture. They still, to this day, there's a part of, a, of the Jewish service in synagogue where a Levite, someone descended from this tribe, is required to read a certain passage. And so the, both a tax collector, which is highly reviled, and a Levite, which is somehow highly respected. Jesus is doing a thing right here. Jesus is beginning to undo some of the assumptions we have about who's okay to follow him. Because in previous stories, he calls fishermen, kind of the unremarkable, the nobodies. And he calls them in to follow him. And then here we see him calling a tax collector who is a Levite, so a somebody, but also a despised somebody. And so we went from the unremarkable being okay to follow Jesus to also the remarkable for good and bad okay to follow Jesus. And then he says this thing that is a little bit strange if we divorce it from context. This idea that Jesus responds to the murmuring and the doubts, to the, the kind of questioning of the religious around him, Jesus says... 
The well have no need for a doctor. The, the, the well, the healthy don't need the physician. I'm, I'm not here for them anyway. I'm here for the sick. I'm here for the sinner that they might find hope and wholeness on the other side. When we read this, we often read this as a takedown of the Pharisees and the scribes, of the religious people who figured they had everything together. And so we go, well, what's he doing? Well, he's telling him, I'm not here for you guys. And that's partly true. He's not here to uphold their religion. But there's, there's something else happening. Jesus is reframing the entire landscape of kingdom living in this moment. Because he's in a Jewish society, and as we've seen this, this whole month, this whole passage, if you read back through it, if this is your first week joining us, read back through it. He, he finds a leper. Lepers were required to stay out of the city because they were unclean. And Jesus goes and he touches him. This uncleanliness requires tons of ritualistic work to get back to an acceptable state, and yet Jesus is okay with that. All throughout Jewish society, like the leper, everybody who was potentially unclean had all of these rules placed upon them. Lepers had to stay out of the city. Uh, menstruating women were exiled from the camp. People who butchered animals had certain rules. They had to wash and do a certain thing in order to get back in and be acceptable. Basically, what we see through Luke 5, what we see through the entirety of the gospel is Jesus is operating in a world that says purity is obtained by eliminating and exiling all impurity from life. That purity is, is, is only brought in when we push out what is impure. The way to stay pure is to keep the impure as far away as possible. And Jesus shows up and over and over again, he's inviting impure close. And before we go, well, that's them, that's interesting, but why, how does that apply to us? That's us. That's what we do. That's how our society works, the same way. The easiest way to see it is in a physical sense. It is flu season. It is strep season. It is puke season. It, I've heard all of it. We're getting letters sent home from the school. Please don't send your kids to school. If, and it's like everything short of just breathing, you cannot send your kid to school because everybody's communicable. Everybody's contagious. People are puking on other people. It's, it's Thunderdome. <laughs> and so what does the school say to do for sick kids? Keep them home. Keep them home. Keep them away from others. They're impure. Uh, we're thinking, uh, Miss Megan is one of our uh, kids leaders and she's been known in the last few weeks she just has a sanitizer like in, she's double-barreled sanitizer she's just sanitizing people as they walk in unsuspectingly we're going to install those you know those spritzers they have at like theme parks that just mist people we're going to fill that with sanitizer and just see what happens and you'll walk in and you'll taste it and it'll be terrible but but you'll be pure your church we don't want sick kids in here soccer team don't bring your sick kids dance studio send home a letter don't bring your sick kids it's not just kids, your office, the university. The prevailing feeling is we can't stay healthy if the sick are in our midst. We can't stay pure if the impure infect us, so we have to keep them away. And we call that religion. It's what, it's what Jesus walks into is a, a society that says the way that we stay clean is to keep the dirty far away. And what's interesting is there's one place that actually advertises today and actually wants your sick kids. Where's that? Not Chuck E. Cheese. It's a German infestation. We know. <laughs> Physician's office. The doctor wants your kids. This is the doctor's greatest season. They're, this is like an accountant at tax time. Just more. Bring me all of your sick children. More. They're puking on them. Do you want to just meet in the hallway? You can both come in. Doctors love this. I mean, why? The doctor wants the sick. The doctor signed up to have the sick brought in. The doctor wants the impure and the infected. A few years ago when we were still living in San Antonio, my 
wife went through a phase where she really liked fresh coconut. Fresh coconut. Buy the raw, husked coconut, crack it open with a hammer, get some sort of sharp instrument and dig out all the flesh. And that's what she liked. And I was like, well, I'm a great husband. I'm going to make sure you have that as often as you want it. I got pretty good at it. Got a little prideful at how good I was at this. When we get pride, the Bible says pride goes before the fall. It actually goes before the stabbing. So here's what happened. I'm holding the coconut. I got sloppy. I have the knife, the sharpest knife we own because coconut is really hard to get out. And so I'm stabbing, you know, you can just kind of see I'm stabbing this coconut husk, half of it, and I'm digging stuff out of it. And then um, one way or another, I'm not totally sure how, but I just, I stabbed and then I realized that I didn't get coconut. I had hit uh, this bone right here on the inside. I was like, oh, that's bone. <laughs> Didn't know coconuts had bones. And then when the blood starts spurting, I was like, oh, the coconut doesn't have bones. I do. This is a problem. And, and so my wife is a little squeamish. She doesn't like blood. And so I'm thinking, okay, how do we avoid panic here? And so I told somebody in the house to run and grab uh, one of the dog's tennis ball chew toys. And then I said, somebody else, go get me a surgical glove because we had some latex gloves for some reason. I don't know. And, and they put the ball in the glove and I smashed the glove into my hand and I'm like, I can stitch the bleeding this way and maybe she won't panic when I say, hey, honey. And she goes, yeah. And I was like, uh, coconut's gonna be a while. Can we just make a quick run, a quick errand? She's like, yeah, what do we need to do? I was like, ER would be cool. Anything you got. We go to the ER, we pull in. I'm just dripping everywhere. There's blood everywhere. They're not worried about it. And it got to thinking of all the places I could have gone at that moment where there's just, I mean, it was like a six foot like geyser of blood for a while. And I don't know what I hit, but it was quite interesting. If I had come in here, or let's say you came in here this morning and there was just someone walking around with just blood dripping down from their hand. Hey, good to meet you. And you'd go, hey, not so much. <laughs> go over to local daycare, just walk in bleeding. Hey guys, just checking stuff out in here. How's that going to go? Think of any other place on earth, if I show up just pouring blood, that's not okay. Nobody wants me there showing up with my coconut blood hand. Nobody wants me. But the hospital's thrilled to have me because it was designed to welcome in the wounded. So the question is, where do you and I turn when blood and wooziness and brokenness enter our lives? We turn to the hospital. We look for the place, I looked for the place the nearest place with the most doctors. That's kind of the math we do. I don't know if you realize this. When you're, depending on how sick you are, you want the most doctors in the closest proximity. And so you find out where that is and you go there. This is the same thing Jesus is doing. Do you see the flip happen when he's in this sort of society that says, hey, keep the impure out? Jesus is basically saying, your religion thinks that purity comes from the avoidance of impurity. And what Jesus is there to do is remind them that purity comes when true purity engages and heals impurity. That quarantine and treatment are not the same. We live in a world where whether we know it or not, it's spiritual sense. We think quarantine is the way to go. We think that if we just stay away from the bad stuff, that maybe that'll help us be good. So if I just don't bleed on anybody, will it heal? No, I need stitches. If you break your leg and you just get crutches, does the bone ever set rightly again? No, you have to go get treatment. You have to get healing. You get antibiotics, you get a cast, you get healing through treatment, not through quarantine. You can be separate, but that doesn't make you safe. And we live in a world spiritually where we think if we can just be separate enough, if I vote different, I go to a different church, if I stay away from that internet site, if I, whatever it is you struggle with, if I can just stay away, then I'm good. And Jesus says, it's not about that. That quarantine and treatment are very different. 
And there's something profound about this worldview, something required in Jesus that you and I, we don't have naturally. We get supernaturally only through him, and it's a fearlessness. It's fearlessness. In Luke 5, we see Jesus hobnobbing with fishermen, takes his reputation down a peg, and then he's touching lepers who are unclean, making him unclean, and that brings him down a couple more pegs, and then he's rewarding some dudes who tear through a roof to lower their paralyzed friend in to get healing, which in essence is saying that vandals and, and scandalous people win by circumventing the societal norms. So he, uh, he says, that's cool, let's do that, which takes him down a peg. And if you look at Jesus's life in Galilee, you start seeing that this is not a guy who's playing by the rules. This is not a guy who's doing things the normal way. This is somebody who's fearless as to what he's doing is going to do to his relationship. So now we pick up the story and he's just hanging with a tax collector, the hated tax collector. He didn't receive him. Jesus actually proactively went and found him, didn't he? And that's the other thing. We think that maybe if I get good enough, I can approach Jesus and Jesus goes right where you are. That's where I want you right where you are. Not if you get your stuff together, not if you put your habit on the shelf, not if you figure out a few things, not if you get more religion, not if you find more morality. Jesus wants you now like you are today. He comes proactively to find us. He goes proactively to the tax collector, the most despised man in the town, and he goes, you're with me now. And then he gets invited to a party at at Matthew's house. Matthew says, let's have a party. Let's celebrate. He invites over his friends. Who are the friends of a tax collector? Tax collectors, prostitutes, scoundrels, and schemers. And Jesus says, love to. He's not afraid of them. He doesn't need to be in quarantine. He doesn't need to be in a bubble. He says, I'd love to, because the way that the impure become pure is not by getting away from what's dirty, but by getting in touch with what's clean. Jesus sits unafraid. And you and I think, we're like, yeah, that's kind of cool. I kind of admire that. And what we have to do is the hard work of kind of work in our soul to say, is that really how we would respond today? It's political season. I don't really pay attention to it on purpose. I try to avoid most of it, but even trying to avoid it, you can't help but notice it's political season. Candidates are coming through, doing their thing. What what if a candidate came through Ohio, rally support, raise money, all that stuff like they all do, They come to their meet and greet opportunities. They go to the dinners that raise money where the wealthy and the influential are brought in to leverage resource for the candidate. Imagine if you heard a candidate, he or she comes through and they leave town before the news ever got wind of it. And their big speech was in a Narcotics Anonymous gathering. And their big dinner was at a rusty table with some homeless folks in the soup kitchen. And their big meet and greet was at a dive bar or a fish fry or the old folks home. You know what the reality of that candidate would be? They would not win. Because you and I would not vote for that candidate because that candidate obviously doesn't understand how power works and what moves the levers of democracy. That's not how it works. You can't do it that way. You're never going to get a vote. He's unelectable. She's unelectable because they're too much on the fringe. They're hanging out with the, what? The Narcotics Anonymous population votes at this percentage. You have to go to the wealthy and the able. You have to go to those with resources and power. That's what we would say, whether we want to admit it or not. We are the Pharisees in the, in the story looking at Jesus going, why are you hanging out with the losers? That's not how you get stuff done. Jesus has willingly compromised his reputation spiritually, physically, societally, relationally. He is digging in with the impure and the unclean and the outsider and the outcast. And what we need to see is Jesus upends the religious and the irreligious alike. We do this thing in our culture, our Christian culture, where we kind of idolize the impure. 
when we over grace. Oh, well, you know, if you're, if you're really an outsider, then Jesus really loves you. And the thing is, Jesus upends the religious and the irreligious alike. Jesus is not just here for the tax collector to the surprise of the Pharisees. He died for them too. He died to save them from religion just as much as he died to save the irreligious from their lostness. Because all of them need something greater. It's not about purity. I mean, it's not about power. It's about purity. And so we, we kind of run these levers of Jesus is doing it wrong because he isn't here for power. He's here for purity. He's not here to, to take, but to, to give. He came to love the atheist and the fundamentalist. And this applies to us because we live in this society where we kind of figure out, how do I fit the mold that gets me saved? How do I fit the, the rubric that's going to get me favor? And what we really want is comfort. We want to be told we can be comfortable where we are. And this is the irreligious and the religious both asking the same question. How do I find comfort? Some of us want to be comfortable in our religiosity. I show up to church often enough. I give my 10%. I do the things I'm supposed to do. I follow the rituals. I don't bend the rules. I'm religious. Can I just be comfortable there? Others of us want to be comfortable in sin. Hey, look, you said grace covers it all, and I just, this is a thing I do, and this is a random thing I have, and this is something I'm working with, but it's a struggle, and I don't work too hard because it's kind of fun. And I want to be comfortable. Just tell me I'm okay in my sin. You see it all through culture. We got new denominations, new churches, and everybody's trying to bend the rules to fit. These sins will be okay. Let's have a church that welcomes these sins. And no, oh, okay, we're going to have a church that welcomes these type of people. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm here to welcome everybody, but I'm going to offend everybody in the meantime. The religious and irreligious alike, you're all going to be offended because nobody's got the path. You can't do enough right stuff to get there. And you can't out your way from my grace either, so you're going to be bummed out. You're all interested. You're all welcome. You can't avoid Jesus. He's sort of unavoidable. And so we practice avoidance. We practice this kind of end around circumspection where we try to figure out how do we get in on our terms. And Jesus is just saying, look, we're all trying to play the quarantine game. The religious are trying to be quarantined with the other religious and the irreligious are trying to find the quarantine of the place that will accept them just like they are. And Jesus is saying, I accept you just like you are. It's okay not to be okay, but don't stay there. It's okay not to be okay. You just can't stay there. If you are caught up in religion and you've never understood what it means to have faith, it's okay to be not okay. You just can't stay there. And if you've never known what faith is and sin has you by the ankle and you can't get free of it, it's okay not to be okay, but you just can't stay there. And Jesus avoids any of the traps and invites everyone in. And you and I, we live in a world where we avoid pain at all costs. And Jesus, we see throughout the scripture, runs into pain, engages the wounded, treats the wounds. We avoid sickness. Jesus leans in to offer rest and recovery. We avoid brokenness. Jesus enters into the pain to start the healing. We avoid the outcast and the outsider. And Jesus invites outsiders to become insiders. You and I put up barriers, barriers of entry to keep out the riffraff. And Jesus just keeps tearing down walls. Religious, irreligious, rule makers, rule breakers, rich, poor, powerful, powerless. Jesus says, you're mine. I want you. He is waving each and every one of us in this room into a life of abundance. You can't be too far gone. John chapter 10, Jesus looks at his disciples and he says to them, truly, I, I say to you, I'm the gate for the sheep. I'm the gate. 
All who came before me are thieves and bandits, but the sheep did not listen to them. I'm the gate. I'm the way you get in. Whoever enters by me will be saved, will come and go out and find pasture. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus is using the picture of a sheepfold, about a four-foot stone wall in a circular shape that had a gate on it. So when a shepherd needed a break, when he needed to give a sheep safe place to be, he would bring them into the sheepfold. And Jesus says, I'm the gate. And you find safety by coming in through me and me alone. But then he says something really interesting. He says, in about the sheepfold. He says, once you come in through me, then you'll come and go with me. And your security and your safety is not in the stone walls, it's in the shepherd. And we have to get to a place where we can see that our security is not in the sheepfold. The life we long for requires us to leave the security of the sheepfold. Whatever construct we've built, religious or irreligious, we have to leave the safety of the sheepfold and find our true security in the shepherd alone. How do we live as abundant people, as healing people, as desperate people, as fearless people, loving others as we go about this life? How do we do that? We've been talking all month about these concepts and these characteristics of God, and the question is, how do we do it? That's how. That we stop finding our security in the construct of our own liking. And we start finding our security in Christ alone. And the one who says perfect love casts out fear. And so when I invite you back out of the sheepfold into the wilderness, back into the dangerous places, I got you. It isn't the stone walls that have you. I have you. We all, on some level, dream of being heroes. It's who we dream of being. Low level, we all have it. That's why kids who aren't so prideful are always dressing up like heroes. That's why they want to pretend to be Superman for Halloween and the princess who saves the world, they, they want to be heroes. As we get older, that dream doesn't die. Our willingness to chase it does because we get prideful and a little bit embarrassed. And we're like, oh, I don't know if I want to be a hero. But deep down, that's still there. We dream of being like the first responders in our society who we call heroes. The kind of people when the building is burning and everybody's running out, they run in. The kind of people when the shooting starts and everybody's scattering, they go in. We call these people heroes. Why? Because they counterintuitively address what's wrong and attempt to make it right. It's not about membership in a religion. It's not about doing the, all the things right on the, the checklist. It's about a relationship. It's not about where you belong or what you think you've earned. It's about to whom you belong and what he's earned for you. The Bible says that the physician, the great physician, that Jesus came because we were sick. We were sick with sin. That No one in here qualifies on merit. No one in here has the way in through good behavior. Consider the worst thing you've done. Make it personal. Go to that uncomfortable place of the worst thing you've ever done. The lowest you've ever been. Consider for just a second that secret thought, that thing that if it got out, if people knew that went through your mind, if people knew you'd thought about those things. That habit, man, I hope no one knows about this. Or the heartache that keeps you feeling broken. Consider that for a second. 
Jesus sees you just as you are in that moment. And he rushes into the burning building that is our lives. Jesus sees you right where you are in your worst moment. He's not waiting for you to get cleaned up. He sees you in that place and he rushes in. Jesus sees what it'll cost to rescue you. He sees the risk that it'll take. He sees what it will demand to make you whole. And he says, yep, I got that. Jesus sees the cross and agony. Jesus says, separation, you're worth it. And that's not some universal phrase that we can slough off and go, well, he said that kind of generally. He said it about you. You are worth it. In your worst moment, in your worst thought, in your deepest habit, in your worst sin, Jesus looks at you looks at the cross, looks at you, looks at the cross, looks at you and says, yep, worth it. You are the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the scoundrels and the Pharisees and the scribes and the legalistic righteous zealots. And he looks at each and every one of us and he goes, yep, worth it. He gives up his security to remove us from our insecurity. Jesus became insecure to offer security for you. Because I cannot imagine a more insecure place than being pressed to a wooden cross as railroad spikes are being driven into flesh. That is giving up all power. That is giving up all security. That is giving up all the things that we think we yearn for in our life. Jesus comes to flip the whole conversation and says, I will undo all of it so that you might know it. Are you still living in old values? Are you still religious and trying to earn your love and reward? Jesus says, you already have it. Just lean in. Are you irreligious and trying to avoid rules and rulers? Jesus goes, there's only one and it's me. Lean in. What Jesus does is take our wild and vulnerable insecurity and our scratching and clawing through life for meaning and hope and he offers his abundant love instead. The great physician. That's what the Bible calls Jesus. He's the doctor who, lacking a medical way to save the patient, simply decides to change lives and say, I'll take, the, I'll take the illness. I'll take the diagnosis. It's on me now. Lacking a way to save the patient, he just takes the chart and moves it over and he goes, I'll scratch that up. My name's on it now. I got the illness. You're good to go. It's mind-blowing. It's an exchange. Jesus makes an exchange with us and the one thing about an exchange is it does require us something. It requires us to accept it. The gift has to be received. It's an invitation to follow him. It's an invitation to join his flock, to be one of his safe sheep. It requires that we actually lean in and say yes, that we stay close and we listen to his voice. And that begins with remembrance. How do we do that? You say, well, it begins with remembrance. An everyday walk with the reality that we've just worked through, that he thinks you're worth it. An everyday remembrance of that. Every Sunday we take communion here. I'm going to invite the band back up. As they're about to play, during the next three songs, we're going to take communion. Something we do every Sunday because we're a forgetful people, aren't we? Man, we forget stuff. And the one thing we never want to forget as a church, the one thing as a body we never want to lose sight of is the remembrance that you were deemed worth it and that God saw a cross and saw you and said, I'll take the cross to make you whole. I'll take the cross to see you saved. And so we come up here and we take a piece of bread. It's not just a piece of gluten-free bread cut into a perfect square. It is a representation of something greater. We take that bread that represents Jesus, his body broken for us. 
and we dip it into the cup, into the juice. It's not just juice, it's a representation that his blood was shared for us. There was no greater thing than a blood sacrifice in his culture. It was the greatest way to undo a wrong. So Jesus decided to give the greatest sacrifice ever made. It was himself. And so it's our opportunity to come forward and remember to take the bread that is his broken body represented, to dip it in the cup that is his blood represented, and to remember to be reminded that we serve an abundant, healing, desperate-for-you type of Savior who has, by the way, called us to go and live the same way, to be an abundant, healing, desperate, fearless kind of people. The question for us as we remember today, as we approach the table and take the bread, the question is, do we live out the reality of our days? May we be Christians known for our fearless love, for God's fame and God's glory as lights of grace and goodness with all of our days. Amen?